the reason that we keep seeing secession come up as this endless sort of discordant minority position is because there isn't a stable answer to that question. I, I actually, I just started recording. So yeah, I want, I yeah. yeah. So I what I, whatever brilliant thing I had just finished saying, doubtless, you know, no, I was, I was actually thinking like, oh no, he's jumping right into like the good stuff. Welcome to Deep Dive with me, Sean Fettig. I'm a political scientist, and I'm interested in trust, how our governments and politicians can gain our trust and how they lose it, but also how our personal stories can build trust and bind us together. So this space is dedicated to diving deeper into issues that are interesting, at least to me and hopefully to you, and that maybe we aren't always sure how to talk about. Today, I'm continuing my dive into secession. Last week, I spoke with Dr. Susan Schulten of the University of Denver about the history of secession in the United States. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Timothy Waters, a professor of law at Indiana University. Dr. Waters is an expert on ethnic conflict, human rights, and secession movements around the world. It's his book, Boxing Pandora, Rethinking Borders, States, and Secession in a Democratic World, that shapes our conversation today. And in the second part of this episode, I'm talking to Marcus Ruiz Evans, the leader of the Yes California, or CalExit movement in California, and the author of the book California's Next Century 2.0, Economic Renaissance. Last week, I was trying to understand what secession is from a historical perspective and extrapolate some lessons learned. This week, I want to understand what secession is from a contemporary perspective, as well as what motivates secession movements, What influences these movements? And ultimately, how serious are these movements? And what's the likelihood of success? Let's do a deep dive. Dr. Waters, I'm really excited to have you here. So let's start by level setting a bit and kind of establishing a landscape here. So what is secession? Yeah, that's a great question, actually, because uh, even that is not something that people agree on as a definition. So I, I sort of think of it in pretty pragmatic terms as any time uh, part of a country divides away from and becomes a new country. And some people divide that process up into things like partition or the dissolution of a state or different legal tests. And I think it's more useful to just think of all of them in some way as the formation of a new state. Um, the, the really interesting question, what people normally think of as secession, and it's sort of the heart of the problem, is what we call in the field unilateral secession. That is to say, when some part of a country tries to break away and become a new country without the agreement of the existing country. That's you know what we typically think of as the classic case of secession. Um, and that's the thing that I focus most on, that, that problem of when a group wants to leave and does not have anyone's permission or agreement. As it relates to the United States, then, it, it seems that if most scholars consider this question of secession within the United States settled by the Civil War and then fortified by the Supreme Court decision in Texas v. White, but I've also been hearing and reading that there is some gray area here. And so I guess the question is, what are some of the current like understandings and debates among scholars, yourself included, about the legality of secession, both, I suppose, at the international level, but specific to the United States? 
Yes, I know that's, that's helpful that you add that about the international, because that's my field, international law, and not a, a, an American constitutional law expert. Um, but it's true that in any given secession, probably the most important legal questions are the ones that are at the domestic level. If you're in Spain, it's about the Spanish constitution, and here, America's constitution and its traditions. Um, I think it's safe to say in the field, there are such opinions that there might be pathways to illegal or constitutional secession. I think it's clear that those are very much minority views, and I think those are pretty accurate. So I'm, in a sense, an advocate for the right of secession, broadly understood, but that doesn't mean I think it already exists. I I advocate for it because I don't think it does right now. So I would put myself in that mainstream of of scholars, again, not as an expert, who says, I don't really see a meaningful pathway now. So some people talk about things like Congress could just pass a law creating a new state or or, uh, allowing a state to secede. I'm not sure that's true. It would certainly be challenged in the courts. I don't know of any basis in our constitution for that power belonging to Congress. Likewise, the idea that a state could simply vote itself out of the union, that seems to be precisely the thing that is clearly rejected both by the Civil War and, and Texas v. White. And the, the, the third one is the idea of a constitutional convention. And, and that, I think it's true, could achieve the secession of a state or could incorporate new rules into our system that would allow states to secede. But that's just like saying a constitutional convention could do almost anything. It's not a really interesting, it's what I call a possibilitative logic. It could do that um, because it could do almost anything. And so we should turn to the question of why, why it is that we would not expect that to happen. And, and the key there is a constitutional convention itself is a kind of majoritarian process. And what you're in effect saying is, would the majority in this country sanction the departure of some portion of it? either directly or through such a political process. And I don't think that that's true. So I I don't think that's a really promising path. And that's leaving aside the fact that if you look at constitutional law more generally, anytime someone raises the idea of a constitutional convention, there are myriad objections to opening that can of worms. And so that's just not going to happen, I think. If you were trying to advise or strategize with a secessionist in America, I think you'd want to discourage them from putting all their uh, their investment into into one of those pathways. If this is majoritarian, which it it always is, right? Like any legal secession, I suppose. Well, right. Implicitly, if it's legal, that must mean that the majoritarian processes in that state somehow allowed it. And a couple of constitutions do. And so you could say that those are places where the political process through majoritarian uh, processes has already said, yeah, we can allow this. So that, yeah, anytime it's allowed, you'd probably want to say there's some kind of majoritarian buy-in to it, which is fine. I think that's great when that can happen, when the majority can actually agree that this, you know, this, you know, political marriage isn't working out. Uh, that's better than going the other way, for sure. I'm thinking of this from the, the perspective that secession is probably almost exclusively in, in situations wherein some minority within the community is seeking to secede. I could be wrong, but if that's true, and secession, legal secession is majoritarian. Isn't it also true that this could lead to tyranny then? When you say this lead to tyranny, what do you, what's the this? 
this this idea that the majority has to acquiesce to minorities. Oh, yes. So if I understand what you're getting at, this is one of the core critiques that I raise to yep. the degree that we globally, I mean, at the international level, identify secession as a matter that is for each state to decide for itself, sort of a political question, and we leave it to the internal processes of the state, predictably, whether that state's democratic or not, very few states arrive at the conclusion that it should be okay to let any portion of the political community go. And you're right, it's usually a minority. It doesn't have to be ethnic. It can be regional. But of course, there's usually some identity or interest-based reason why a group of people decide to take this precipitous step, which is often very costly, especially in our world in which the cards are stacked so against you that it's likely to lead to your marginalization or or to violence against you. So you got to have a reason to want to do this. It's not something trivial. And so, so few states support that idea that that indeed it it in a sense i don't want to go so far as to saying it's a tyranny as such but it it is a problem i think for people interested in democratic theory that leaving this to majority processes inside a state in effect guarantees that the interests of that smaller group that minority are going to be ignored or marginalized and and we should be concerned about that in particular because, and this is something I talk about at length in, 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 the, in the book, trying to come up with a theory as to why we should be interested in secession. The fact that a group is a minority inside a given country is really just a function of the borders that have already been drawn. This is what, you know, it's called like the democratic un- unit problem. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about whether someone is part of a majority or minority unless you know the shape of the unit they're already in. We know this from domestic context, from things like gerrymandering, and it's really very similar, that you can create majorities or minorities. So the example I would give of this problem is is a place like Kosovo. And it's it's helpful because lots of people in America sort of at this point intuitively understand or believe, you know, Kosovo Albanians deserve their own country. We've, in effect, fought a war to vindicate that claim. But when they were part of Serbia back in the 90s, you know, in the decades before that, they were a minority inside that country, 2 million people in a country of 10 million. And if we just sort of ran a democratic process and asked people what the result should be, they, they would lose every time. But in that corner of the country where Albanians tend to live, in what we call Kosovo, they were a clear majority. And now in their own country, they're an overwhelming majority. So whether they're a minority or majority is, is solely a function of those borders, which means I don't know why we would use that as the criterion for deciding whether or not a secession was meaningful or democratic. And that's where I see it in a sense structurally sort of open to the idea of tyranny. And that's leaving aside whether the majority engages in actual persecution and repression, which often happens. So the book you're referencing is your book, Boxing Pandora, Rethinking Borders, States, and Secession in a Democratic World. And I want to circle back in a little bit and come back to this conversation. But first, so one argument against legal secession is that it could create a cascading effect that effectively, I suppose, eventually poses an existential threat to a nation, wherein, you know, everyone secedes. My question is, in places where there are secession pathways or avenues, legal secession pathways, do we see higher instances of secession? I think it's safe to say no. So so there's so few places, I, I would despair of 
coming up with a kind of uh, empirical analysis. And this is one point I try to raise in the book is that a lot of our belief about secession is based on assumptions about stability and process that are actually really hard to, to measure. That is to say that we're, we're going on assumptions we've never really tested. Mm-hmm. Um, but two, so there's only like eight countries, maybe 10 that have constitutionally recognized provisions that might allow some part of the country to depart. And that's not happened. So, so the only place I can think of really where it's happened would be uh, the Soviet Union, uh, where everyone agreed that that formal right to secede was was completely bogus. And so when it actually happened at the you know at the beginning of the 90s, uh, I don't think anyone thought it was because of the constitutional process, but rather just the collapse of the state. There's also the example of Sudan and South Sudan, where the secession was approved by the Sudanese uh, government, but that's only after decades of war in which the government was fought to a standstill. In the places that have just incorporated a right to secession in the constitution, like Kits and Nevis, mm-hmm. actually, I don't think it's ever been deployed. So it, that, if we think of that as data, one thing it might suggest is in those rare cases where states actually recognize a right to secession, it doesn't lead to you know, a charge for the exits. And we have the recent examples of Scotland and Quebec, both having referenda that were approved by the government. Um, and of course, they both you know, ended up with a majority vote to remain. I don't want to base this on like a statistical argument. Uh-huh. I think it's, it's too little data for that. But at least we can note, it's just not true that creating a right of secession automatically would lead to exit and then to endless fracturing. And on that second point, I'd say the, the, the thing people forget is there are enormous incentives for small communities to integrate, not just disintegrate. Mm. So you get your own country, congratulations. And then, you know, if we think about you, the, uh, you know, the events in Ukraine today, uh, the world's a really dangerous place. And you need to trade, you need security, uh, you need all kinds of uh, uh, goods that come from economies of scale. And so we see lots of reasons why communities choose to join larger political units. And, and that countervailing integrative impulse, I think, may explain why we would not expect an endless cascade into tiny, fractured, mm. and violent communities. I could also imagine that having such a mechanism could actually calibrate the response from both secessionists and anti-secessionists within a community in that having that very real possibility could temper perhaps their politics. Oh, I think that's absolutely right on the limited cases that we have. I think there's good reason to believe in Canada, for example, after the Supreme Court published this fascinating advisory opinion about whether secession was legal or not and and said many things that unilateral secession wasn't legal, but that a, a claim for secession would have to be taken seriously by the government. I think there's a lot of reason to believe that that tempered the secessionist movement. The, the very fact that they now had a pathway uh, that, that would allow them to, to exit may have deflated the movement to some degree. Oh, it's more complex than that, obviously. But there's something to be said for that. And just having it incorporated creates, creates a set of norms that both sides need to respond to, rather than it being this sort of extra-political extra-constitutional process that I think has fewer guardrails on it. So I agree 
that while the normal intuition is a right to secession built into a constitution will sort of weaken the state because it allows this exit, well, I think it equally likely produces the very effect you described, that it creates pathways and guardrails that might actually strengthen the state. And I'd add one more thing. Mm -hmm. This is something I, I think a lot about in cases of places like Bosnia. If a state is that fragile, that it needs sort of mandatory coercive protections of its territorial integrity against its own population's desire to exit, I think we are, we are all also confronting a kind of normative question, a political question. Why would we be looking to shore up that country necessarily? If it's that weak and undesired by its own population, I think I think, in other words, we should also be asking questions about whether such a state is is democratically legitimate. When I say asking, I don't mean that we should be intervening externally, but asking this as scholars, as observers, and in a sense, asking whether we should intervene to support the state or simply uh, encourage it to think about restructuring itself uh, if it really has a permanent disaffected minority inside it. So this is a really interesting point, though. And I wonder where you draw the line on determining it. There is the scenario wherein secession is explicitly illegal because the nation is holding together disparate and fractured communities that don't want to be part of the nation. And there are also nation states that have no mechanisms for secession we can imagine the United States, uh, where there are secessionist movements in all 50 states, might want to be or entertain the idea. So where do you draw the line between like coercive anti-secession rules versus anti-secession rules that are not necessarily coercive, or at least haven't gotten to the point where you're pulling that lever? Oh, it's a great question. I, I certainly come down strongly on one sort of far end of the spectrum. So, so one thing we can clearly see that should be excluded is use of violence to secede. I think, and in a sense, our free speech norms in this country allow it. Yeah, we have these marginal secession movements in every in every state, and they're fine. They're legal. You can advocate for that. Uh, the fact that there's no legal pathway is not the same as saying you're not allowed to engage in the politics surrounding mm -hmm. secession. And I think that's a good thing think it's healthy that we allow people to make these claims and even to agitate for uh, not only for secession, but for changes in the law that might allow it. What, what we shouldn't support is people who want to use coercion and violence to achieve that goal. But that's partly why I think the state, in a sense, has an obligation uh, to create the pathways for this process to occur peaceably so that people do not feel rightly or wrongly, that that's their only alternative. You know, I often, I, I rely a lot on the work of the famous international relations scholar E.H. Carr, and he wrote the, you know, the, the famous book, 20 Years Crisis, just before the start of the Second World War, criticizing the interwar attempts to create a kind of global governance model. And he has this wonderful line in the book that he says, you know, the, the key purpose of international relations is to create mechanisms for peaceful change. That if you don't have mechanisms for peaceful change, you can expect the other kind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true domestically as well. Creating a pathway for people to make that ultimate claim that they want to depart 
as a process, I, th- I think is is healthy and, and allows the state legitimately to say, but you can't use coercion or violence. But I, I really am strongly on that end of the spectrum. I don't think that we ought to be prohibiting political action in favor of secession. Other than that, we ought to defend our country on its merits and its virtues. Uh, and, and I think uh, the fact that these secession movements are marginal suggests we could relax the standards in this country and we'd survive quite well as a country because the vast majority of Americans are committed patriots to this country, put it to a vote and they'd vote to stay. So I think, in other words, I think that having a process is valuable and making that process as capacious as possible makes sense. There's, there are other really hard questions in terms of the, of the process of identifying who is it that could make a claim. And it's something I work a lot on because we might talk about, you know, Texas or New Hampshire. But what if it's just a community that doesn't have a pre-existing political identity? Many of the cases I work on are like that, you know, say Kurds in Turkey. There's no border around them. So they can't just use an existing political unit and engineer an electoral majority inside it, like, like happened in Quebec, let's say. And for them, we need a process. How do we identify the community that and the territory that might be leaving? And I spent a lot of time in the book trying to identify the way we could do that. It's, it's one of the places where even people in law and philosophy who are sympathetic to the idea of secession tend to defect from the argument because they don't see a pathway from the intuition that we should allow people to secede to a, a mechanism of how to do it. And that's the, that's the really hard part, I think. It does seem to me that in the United States, we, we do seem to be living through a sustained period of time in which the, you know, the two dominant political parties are sharply diverging and, 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 and in ways that seem to be creating almost a cultural chasm across communities. And, and, and as you just mentioned, that people are maybe seeking ways to be separated from the other side you know, voluntarily when they can. And I think Bill Bishop's book, The Big Sort, hones in on this. But, you know, people can't always voluntarily leave unfriendly situations. And even when they can, they're actually creating new geographic borders between themselves and the other. And as I mentioned, I, I, th- I think to you earlier, you know, this, this equation looks something like, you know, people don't like each other, plus they don't want to be married anymore. And they separate to the best, you know, best extent that they can, but that all equals, there's really no outlet for that. So, this seems like this could be a recipe for political violence. And you you talk about this, is that secession seems like a remedy or a release valve that could be used to kind of mitigate that. And, and I'm wondering if you could just kind of expand on that. Yeah. So, and, and I th- so I think both things are true. And something as a theme I repeatedly return to in the book that I'm not proposing a model of, of you know, a broad right of secession because that's going to lead to, you know, a peaceful new Eden. That would be a violent world too. And, and But the point is that what we really need to ask is, would changing the norms around secession make this world less violent and more just or less unjust than the one we're in? It's a comparative exercise, in other words, because the current world has a lot of injustice and violence. So I, I never want to argue that allowing more secession would never lead to instability and violence. It's the fact that it could, uh, but we trade it off against uh, the. So, if you think about something like the problems we have today of polarized politics, I, I'd say two things. The, bad as they look, they, they aren't, I think, anything like the period prior to the Civil War in terms of the 
territorial division of political sensibility. So we have red and blue states, but they're really mostly purple, just different mm-hmm. shades. And you just can't draw a line between, for all our talk of you know the coasts and the Midwest, there's just not a clear line in this country between those two political, polarized political parties. Mm-hmm. And secession doesn't make a lot of sense unless you can draw a meaningful territorial distinction. It doesn't mean it has to be 100% or anything. There are always diverse populations, and that, and that, in fact, is the real problem with any political union or its division, is how to accommodate the political diversity inside it. That's true for a secession as well. But I don't think that we are in that kind of position where secession would be uh, helpful for our problems. That said, I, I do think, back to your your point, your question, I think it's true that secession doesn't just increase tension and create instability. It also provides uh, an escape valve, a release valve. The fact that one could exit, as we see in Canada, for example, can lower the, the temperature. So I th- And I wrote an op-ed about this right after Trump was elected. People in California were suddenly talking about secession. Mm-hmm. It was a, an ephemeral moment, of course, a kind of moral panic. But I wrote about it to say, look, go ahead, let these people vote. I'm from California. I have a real interest in the question. Mm-hmm. Let Californians decide do they want to be part of this country or not. I suspect they'll vote to stay. And that actually would strengthen our union if this question were asked of us and we affirmed it, rather than feeling that we're just locked into this increasingly polarized space. But it's true. Opening that door could lead to sort of short midterm instability. But keeping it locked, the polarization we're feeling in this country now is not because secession is an option. It's happening autonomously because of our internal union politics. So I I don't think that we should be necessarily concerned that uh, if we were to think about secession, that that might somehow make it worse. If it's getting worse now, it's because we're inside a union in which we're all trapped and we aren't finding ways to make that work to our satisfaction. That's one of the big themes I I advance in the book. I'm all for the states we have. I'm all for autonomy, federalism, when they work. But we need the tool of secession for those cases in which all the other efforts don't succeed. And what we've got is a state whose very boundaries and demography are exacerbating the problems of the people inside them. I don't think we're there yet, but that's a real problem for many communities around the world. And I think the reverse question is probably equally important, which is, does secession solve the problem? Well, I think it does solve the problem sometimes. You know, uh, the, when, when two communities share a political space and the problems that they confront are demographic in nature. So mm-hmm. Kosovo and Serbia, again, is a good example. Two communities with very different traditions, identities, languages, sharing a political space in which one is a permanent minority then in many respects, exit does solve those problems. It doesn't solve every problem for the future. Kosovo has real problems today, as does Serbia. Very distressed economies. But again, it's not about the perfect as an alternative. There are real benefits from allowing communities that are disaffected and marginalized and that are constituted a local majority to, to exit and make their own political future. That doesn't mean all their problems will be solved, mm-hmm. for sure. So setting aside the domestic challenges, where does 
international law play in this sandbox? <laughs> so uh, um, this is a great question. Theoretically, formally, secession doesn't violate international law. It's a purely political question. But I think everyone who works in this field, including myself, believes that, in fact, international law is strongly supportive of existing states and therefore uh, strongly disincentivizes secession. I, I think that's not the least bit controversial. So it's, a, it's an enabler of, of what we call territorial integrity, the, the, the maintenance of existing states in their territory and borders. And so one reason I've constructed my book as an argument about international law is I think this isn't just a problem in a given country. You know, we, we think about a particular political crisis, a secession crisis in one place or another, in you know, Bougainville or Cameroon, but it has a component that is global. And that's what I wanted to address. There, there is a global set of legal and political norms that, in a sense, enable individual states to ignore the claims of communities inside them, such that they eventually try to secede and we see a violent resolution of the conflict. Usually they're forced reincorporation because most secession movements fail. So I wanted to focus on international law as a way of saying, we can't just deal with each country individually. We have to recognize the commonality and the ways in which our global system enable us to ignore these claims. And the other reason I did it, I, I have a background in human rights as well. Human rights is a in many ways, a very marginal discipline. It's not clear how it's enforced, mm -hmm. but nobody thinks it's a bad idea to make the claims and to advance them. You know, the hope is that they give some marginal support to oppressed communities to be able to say, you know, this is a violation of our rights, so we can draw on a little more diplomatic support in their contest with an oppressive state. And that's the model I wanted to adopt here as well. It's not that you know, tomorrow people will accept the argument that international law should recognize the right of secession. But if it marginally more legitimates the idea, then it gives a group that's trying to fight for either secession or just a better deal in its own country. It gives them like one more card to play. If they can say, look, there's a, an idea that it's illegitimate to deny me the right to negotiate my secession. That's really all I'm looking at is that, you know, that 1% shifting of the balance, which right now is almost totally against groups that would like to exit and in favor of existing states. Mm. And that's a really bad, you know, if you study negotiations theory, this is like negotiating in a locked room where one side holds all the, the, the resources. The, the, the distribution of those resources is going to be really unfavorable to the other person in the room if they can't get out. In the United States, we, I mean, ostensibly embrace a value of consent of the governed which you know means that the people must consent to be governed in the fashion by which they are and the, and by the people by which they are and if we leave aside kind of this nuance of the word people and who that is you know does it mean a majority a supermajority a majority within a specific community etc and focus instead on just the idea of consent of the governed how does that fit into what seems to be the consensus that states and regions cannot just unilaterally decide to leave? And, and the, 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 there's a potential tension here between these concepts is where I'm going with this. Consent and forced unchanging borders. Is, is, this, oh, value, yeah. is this value just an empty like rhetorical flourish? Well, I, I think in many respects, 
I won't say that consent of the governed is is empty, but uh, I will say there's a, a an adjacent related principle that is basically normatively empty, and that's the idea of territorial integrity. And and it's safe to say, fair to say, that our global system since World War II is premised on the idea that states in their existing territories should be proof against any alteration from outside and from inside if they don't want it. So again, a majoritarian logic. And that really does raise problems for the idea that this is you know, consensual governance. But of course, I mean, as, you, as you know, as you implicitly identified, that this is a, an ancient problem. As soon as people developed you know, philosophies of democratic participation and the state, they recognized this problem that you needed to explain continuing consent. A community can form a political society, a state, fine. But what about their children and their grandchildren? We can see that most you know, classic theories of the state engage in some fiction about continuing consent, mm-hmm. um, necessarily, because it's really hard to imagine giving everyone the right to have to, you know, the, the right to re-consent in every generation. But if you don't have any mechanism for checking back in, as it were, it does become increasingly abstracted away from the actual populations. And, and that's why I focus on not just sort of polarized populations in America, but territorially compact groups that really have a claim plausibly that if it weren't for these borders, we, we'd be a majority in the other country next door or in our own country. And so why are you just declaring that we're part of this people when in fact we don't have much of a meaningful voice in it? So it's a really endemic problem. And I, I do think it's fair to say that if a, if a system makes no accommodations for the question of continuing consent of the governed in general, that's a pretty hollow principle. And more specifically on this point, if it doesn't make accommodation for the problem of diversity of that consent inside the population, that is to say, attending to the different political identity of minorities over time, regional, ethnic, it also suffers from a lack of legitimacy and and that the principle becomes really hollow. I think that's a real problem. And what we've, we've tried to solve it by just declaring that states are to have the borders they have, a kind of rigid refusal to enter into this question. And we hope to solve it instead by democratizing those spaces that we call states so that at least they're democratic. But that doesn't solve the problem of permanent minorities inside them. And that's what my whole project is looking at, is how, how do we let those communities also take a meaningful part in their own consensual government? We chatted about this yesterday a bit. In, in reading your book, Something that jumped off the page to me was that there is a difference between states that are seeking independence, like secession to establish their own entirely new nation, and then states that seek secession in pursuit of perhaps joining with another established nation. And you know, the example I gave was this might be the difference between Texas seceding to become its own new nation and Texas seceding to join Mexico, where in in this in the in the latter scenario, it seems as if norms that are or, or could be established to relax rules against secession might actually promote what I'm just calling country hunting on the part mm-hmm. of some nations to peel away portions of other nations or or not even to peel them away for the express purpose of absorbing them, perhaps just to divide them. And you drew this the comparison to what's happened in Eastern Ukraine between oh, yeah. 2014. You know, examples of some of their behavior is like Russia installed essentially shadow governments. They funded separatists, granted passports to Ukrainians, making them Russian citizens. So the question is, 
Could this incentivize bad actor countries to sow chaos? Yes, it could. Absolutely. This is back to the theme that, you know, we're not talking about a model in which there will be peace and, and harmony and different forms of chaos, hopefully fewer, uh, would still persist. And, and this is one real problem, that it might incentivize states to engage in irredentism, to you know, claw off territory of the neighbors under a pretextual claim you know, or a real claim that those people want their independence and we're going to help them. It's true. That's a risk, and in a sense, we're seeing that in, in eastern Ukraine right now. But it's important to note, what we're seeing now is happening under our current system, in which we have totally opposed the idea of secession. Uh-huh. So one, one thing you know, sort of to think about is that apparently the current system is not very good at protecting us against this kind of pretextual uh, uh, use of force anyway. So if there's a benefit to be gained for many communities from allowing them to exit, I'm not sure we should forego that because of a risk that's already present in the current system. But I, I wish to go farther. And this is, you know, it's an awkward time to do this during this war. This is completely unjustified what is happening now. And it's also true, I think, if you look back, and I wrote about this in 14 and 15 on, on some blogs, the uh, when, when, when Putin made his prior interventions, also illegitimate and, and illegal, but in those cases, relying upon the fact that such communities already existed inside Ukraine. So in other words, it's embedded in your question. It's true that giving credit to or credence to communities that wish to exit could strengthen the hand of outside interveners. But, but, but implicit in that is that those communities do, in fact, exist. And there were very disaffected populations in eastern Ukraine and in Crimea that were, you know, more or less pro-Russian in their voting patterns and their sentiment, a thing which Putin then took advantage of. And so one thing I would remind us of is that in our current system, I talked about the way international law enables states to ignore disaffected populations. And Ukraine prior to 2014 is a great example of that. There were populations in Crimea and in the East that were clearly disaffected from, from Kyiv's governance. But Kiev didn't do anything about it. It didn't have to. Mm. Not, no, no other country incentivized it to. International law didn't. And so it let this problem fester. And yes, eventually Putin takes pretextual advantage of it. That's clear. But the problem was already there, and our system made no effort to deal with it. No, no mechanism for a peaceful change, and now we're getting the other kind. That's not to justify it, but it is mm-hmm. to notice it. And to think about, might we want to have a set of processes in place that could allow us to respond to the interests of populations, real, pretextual, of all kinds, prior to this moment? You know, and it might put guardrails in place if, if, uh, if there were processes that we recognized that allowed communities to make these claims. They wouldn't just create pretexts for outside actors to involve themselves. They could also put up guardrails. That since those processes exist, you don't need to use, uh, you know, main force to achieve your goal because we have a legitimate electoral process, negotiated process that we can rely upon. That's what I'm aiming at. So in a sense, we talked about this yesterday. I think that what's happening in Ukraine uh, is both a caution about the dangers of opening up borders, but it's also a caution about pretending that borders are rigid unchanging and that that's going to work. I think it's clear the events of this last month uh, and of 2014 
should tell anyone that the borders of Ukraine are not functioning to the benefit of the Ukrainian people. So I think implicit in my question is then in this context, the where where is your research going next? Like, how do you iterate on the arguments you're making in Boxing Pandora? That's a great question. Uh, you have a lot of great questions, it seems. <laughs> I had originally thought about dividing the book into two and the second part being all about the process. Um, but instead, I did most of that in a, in a final chapter. And I mm-hmm. note, so you know, how could we actually get to this new rule that I described? Um, but I, I called that chapter the hardest part. Yep. So it's hard enough to convince people that secession might not be a bad idea. It's hard enough to say, look, we could imagine a process. And, but it's harder still to say, how would we get there in actual politics? And I had to be sort of dragged kicking and screaming to include the chapter uh, because honestly, I'm, I'm mostly a realist in my, in my you know, political and legal thinking. And I think this is a good idea and worth developing, but I don't think there's a lot of likelihood that it will be picked up anytime soon. So I was going to just leave that out and imagine it as a future project. But I did incorporate it. Say, look, these are pathways we could imagine beginning to go down. Um, so when I look at the future, of this, you know, the next stages are likely to be engaging with particular conflicts. Could be Ukraine. I've been doing some work on Catalonia, and and partly this will depend on what conflicts, what uh, debates arise. If there were a new Scottish referendum, I find those cases particularly interesting, Scotland and Catalonia, precisely because they aren't about massive violence and persecution the way Kosovo was, let's say, that if, if their claims make sense, it's, it's because of the bare right of a human community to define its own political future, to, to claim for itself the sort of top-level unit status of state in the global system and all the things that might come with it and the limitations, um, but not because they're oppressed, but simply because they desire it. And I think that's a tremendously powerful claim. And that's where we ought to be centering our question, not distracting ourselves with asking how much suffering justifies secession, how many deaths or how many years of oppression, but rather how do we respond to the desire of human beings to remake their own politics? I think that last chapter, and I'm glad you you bring it up. the The hardest part is is actually a really satisfying chapter because oh, I'm of. Glad to hear that, I'm totally unsatisfied with it, but I think it's because of the realism that it really resonated with me, and the reason is this is one of the one of my biggest frustrations with with books that tackle not just subjects like secession, but also like political violence or potential for civil war or the breakdown of our democratic comedy is that it's a lot of fire and then no water. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, you know, like it's a lot of like here's all these horrible things, and then the final chapter is often, but uh, we can avoid all this if we just do these things, and these things are always unlikely. And I think you kind of tackled that head on, and I really appreciated that, and acknowledged it even in the title, right? The hardest part. I'm glad to hear that because that was sort of my intuition. My first intuition was not to do it at all, and then it's like, well, okay, I can see why I had to do it, but there's no point in just Pollyannishly pretending that this is all going to work. It's a you know, improbable slog. And the place to look is in individual countries that are, in a sense, already pre-persuaded of this idea. They, they tend to be, you know, wealthy, uh, rights-respecting, you know, countries. But part of my argument would be those aren't just outliers. Those are models we ought to be looking to. You know, more countries should be like Canada and mm-hmm. the UK. That'd be a good thing. And how can we get towards that? 
I really do think it's, you know, these are very long, you know, if, if one's interested in this, uh, you know, it's a question of opportunism, looking for cases that might, uh, where one might get a coalition of support that happens, you know, South Sudan or Kosovo, and then trying to build out from that more general claims. Um, but, but we're far from that. If you look at the U.S.'s own behavior in Kosovo, uh, where it decided to fight for its own reasons, to fight in support of an independence movement, it then spent a decade dragging its feet and insisted that its intervention was sui generis, you know, no precedential value whatsoever, which is an impossible thing to say, but but doesn't exactly help the claim that maybe this is a thing that could happen elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Of course, we, we see, back to your other question, we see who picked up on the precedent, it's Vladimir Putin, right. and he used it for his own interventions in the Caucasus and, and in Ukraine. You know, so it's true that these things can be abused, like any doctrine. One final question for you. What have you been reading or watching that's been particularly interesting to you lately? And it does not have to be related to this topic. Yeah, it hasn't been. Um, I'll say I'll give you two things I've been doing. So for the last two years, I've been on a, a reading program of, of the Greek and Roman classics that I never got to in college. So I've been trying to read a lot of those. Thucydides, that is kind of relevant, actually. I think everyone in law school should read parts of the Peloponnesian War uh, if they want to understand how law and power work. But, you know, reading plays and whatnot from the Greeks and Romans, uh, just to sort of fill in what I thought of as a gap in my uh, education. The other thing I'll say is I recently read uh, Butcher's Crossing by John Williams, if you know this book. Mm-hmm. So I strongly re- I've read all of his books by now. John Williams uh, wrote Butcher's Crossing. He also His other famous books are Augustus, which is like an epistolary, epistolary novel about the Emperor Augustus. And uh, a wonderful book called Stoner, which is not about what you might think. It's about an academic uh, in the Midwest uh, who's, who's very marginal. I recommend it to everyone working in a university because huh. it's, it's a, just a penetrating, beautiful, and painful look at a human being and his engagement with the world of the mind. It's, uh, he's a wonderful writer. He, he won, the, the I want to say, the Pulitzer for, for Augustus. So he was a regarded writer in his time. Wonderful books, Butcher's Crossing, and they're all in different genres. Butcher's Crossing is a western, but such a western. It's it's uh, you know it's not just sort of uh, you know cowboys riding to the sunset, but a you know an unrelenting, brutal, and humane uh, examination of a young man who goes west and and encounters the, the fundamental harshness of nature. He frames the book by this quote from Emerson about you know, so a very romantic vision of how nature. Uh, is going to sort of uh, enlighten and inform the the spirit and mind. And the book is sort of a very polite but firm refutation of this idea that, that in fact, nature is harsh and unyielding uh, and the encounter with it is is, is brutalizing. Um, it's an amazing book, as, as all of his books are. So that's one I've just read recently and, and strongly encourage uh, everyone to read. Okay, great. Thanks. And I'll add that to my list. Think about putting Williams up near the top for one of them, uh, any of those three. Okay. They are all just truly beautiful reads, um, truly humane and powerful. Dr. Waters, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Nice talking to you. All right. My next guest is Marcus Ruiz Evans, the leader of Yes California, or in his own words, the godfather of the Cal Exit Secession Movement. 
Also, you're going to notice it, so I might as well say it. Our connection was a bit wonky, so I apologize for some sound mishaps, but we'll get through it. Marcus, welcome. Thanks for being here. Tell me a little bit about the book and what motivated you to, one, think about these things, but then two, write a book. Well, I am basically the godfather of the (laughs) exit movement, Um, even though I never invented that term. The term CalExit was invented by uh, the public and popularized by Michael Kicho, a UCLA student, the night that Donald Trump won election and Californians freaked out. In 2011, I wrote a book called California's Next Century. Um, Then I traveled to about 40 cities, up and down California, left and right, San Diego, Bay Area, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Sacramento talking to different little uh, you know, clubs like Lions Club and stuff. And eventually I met a publisher and I met a few other people and I got my book officially published in 2012. It was California's Next Century 2.0. And then in 2013, the first article ever in California history was written by columnist Tom Elias. He's the gentleman that's uh, covered California politics for about 30 years. He also started the uh, covering the recall election against Gray Davis that led to the implementation of Governor Schwarzenegger. <clears throat> so he was very well known, knew a lot of politics. He read my book and he interviewed me. And in 2013, there was an article called How Would California Do on Its Own, which was the first serious article in California history by reporters looking at how would California survive as an independent nation of some form. Around 2014, people read the article, saw the book, and approached me, and I formed various organizations, about three to four different ones, uh, aimed at promoting this idea in the public mind. Around 2016, Donald Trump became uh, elected, democratically as we now know, uh, president of America. That evening, Californians lost their mind. And the next day after his election, I was in Sacramento in front of the Capitol building with a tent and chairs and T-shirts and merch all set up. And the tent said, independence in our time. The news came up and said, wow, you guys moved fast. Donald Trump just got elected and you're ready to secede today. And we said, no. We had wanted to secede when Barack Obama was president. And none of our motivations have changed now that Donald Trump's president. And for about a month, the news didn't believe us. A lot of people thought we were lying. A month later, we started getting reporters coming back, starting to recognize that our statement that we had been around since 2014 was true. You know, they wanted to hear this was an all an anti-Trump movement. We said, no. Uh, We've been doing this since 2014, when Barack Obama was here, and it took about two months before the reporters started admitting that although we were vehemently anti-Trump, our movement actually had gone back for years before. Okay, so this brings up an interesting question, though, because I think, and I don't know if this is a ploy or if this is like a truly held belief by folks that are anti-secession, that when there's a Democratic president, you know, conservative states you see a rise in sentiment for secession. And when there's, you know, a, a Republican president, particularly someone like Donald Trump, you see, you know, public sentiment rise in liberal states for secession. But, you know, that's just in response to the current president. And what you're saying here 
is at least for California, that was not the case. And if so, then, then I guess, tell me what the motivators are. If it isn't a Donald Trump or a, a less liberal federal government not attached to the president. Well, you're, you're, there is a lot of truth in what you're saying. So when Hillary Clinton looked like she was going to become president, Texas was talking about seceding. When Joe Biden became elected, Texas said they wanted to secede. When Donald Trump became elected president, California said they wanted to secede. Uh, when the elections were going up and it looked like Donald Trump was going to win re-election, I think it was MSNBC had an article with Shepard Smith where they talked about, well, maybe California will want to secede again if Donald Trump wins re-election. So that's definitely there. I would say with the CalExit movement, it's about 50%. So just looking at the metrics, we had about 10,000 members and had been on San Francisco TV, Sacramento TV, San Diego TV, LA Times, full-page ad twice before Trump was elected. We were campaigning up and down, saying the same thing when Obama was around, got about 10,000 people, and basically had saturated the entire California media network, uh, newspapers and stuff. I remember we were in Sacramento protesting, and there was a TV episode about us on San Francisco and San Diego in the same day. But we had maxed out at about 10,000, and we were continuing to grow, but it was slow growth, and people were starting to hear the message. So even with Obama, people were starting to hear the message. When Trump came on, we grew from 10,000 to um, we, we onboarded about 40,000 new members in about two weeks. And our Facebook page was growing so fast, they literally froze it so it would stop growing because we were on track to have a Facebook page with more members than the California Democratic Party Facebook page. And that would make it difficult for them to call this a fringe movement if we had more uh, public representation than the Democratic Party. So our Facebook page was froze and a couple other things to, to like limit our, our growth. At the same time, after Trump won, many people in the movement were saying, well, this is a reaction to Trump. And everybody in the leadership was saying, no, this is a reaction to America. And if you just want to be against Trump, this isn't the place for you. We lost a few people, but not many. I mean, brother, we were very clear. Like we were saying this since 2014. We've been making these talking points, which I will get to in a second. If you're not okay with that, this isn't the place for you. This isn't Trump's going to go away and everything is going to be fine. Because what they wanted to do was wrap everything into what they called the resist movement. We'll resist Trump and he'll go and then America will go back to uh, its perfect order. We never thought America was working. So this idea of what let's just resist and Trump will be gone and everything will be fine was completely against everything we thought. You know, you can't secede. And be serious about secession if one election fixes everything. That's not stable. So there definitely was a big impetus and catalyst for people to join the movement because of Trump. However, our movement always said this wasn't about Trump. And even after we got all the new members, we were adamant that that's not what we're doing. And most people stayed. So when I look at that, yeah, I think Trump made people aware. But I think once people become aware, they were lifelong followers. Now, the reasons that we're pointing out with Obama and they continue with uh, Biden are this. Number one, California is a donor state. So we pay more into the system than we get it back. Uh, some people were saying that we only lose a penny. That's a lie. Some people were saying we get 91 cents on a the dollar. They based that on a New York state study. 
which should give all sorts of red flags. Why are Californians looking at a financial study out of another state? Um, we like to go with the 75 cents for dollar. We get 75 cents on the dollar. We lose about 25 cents. When you look at that term over the last couple of decades, that's the average. You know, some years that's 16 billion, some years it's 100 billion. On top of that, California is a world trade based economy. We have ports. Uh, we have most of the ports in America here. We have most of the uh, weight uh, freight airports here. One third of our population is immigrant. Uh, we have the tech hub is here that's linked to the rest of the world. Hollywood's here that's linked to certainly China and India and the rest of the world. And we've always been an international trade port since 1550 when Spain came here. So international trade's who we are. California has been the driver of all America's modern international trade reach for the last century. And the reason is we're dependent on it. We need goods coming through here. We need new international businesses. Our universities are full of foreign students. Our ports are full of foreign goods. Our one third of our population is full of foreigners who still retain a language and cultural connection to their homeland, which allows for all sorts of money to be made. The problem is we'll go to the federal government and say, can we have permission to sell strawberries to this country? No, we'll look at it for 10 years and get back to you if we think that's okay. And so you had Governor Schwarzenegger went to Asia, signed trade deals with over $100 billion, and then George W. Bush, a Republican, and Barack Obama, a Democrat, sat on those trade deals for 10 years. Recently, under the Biden administration, we lost a lot of our abilities to trade directly with China. That was taken away by Donald Trump and continued to be taken away by Joseph Biden. That's bad for our economy, bad for our universities, bad for international trade, bad for our immigration, bad for our, our GDP, bad. The other, the other major motivation besides financial, we, we have a different set of cultures um, and they're very different. We have the highest rate of our laws being rejected by a higher federal court than any state in the union. Let's switch to talking about some of the technicalities that come with separation then. So there are things like Social Security and Medicare, which, yes, you know, they follow U.S. citizens wherever they go, you know, assuming they don't renounce their citizenship. Right. But there are other things that I think in the position that California or any state that is seeking to secede probably doesn't have to invest too much kind of intellectual thought into. And that's things like trade and, uh, you know, California's willingness and desire to direct its own trade, right? I could imagine a pushback to that would be, well, as long as you're part of the union, you have a little bit of latitude. Like it's, it's a privilege to be able to say, yeah, we want all of these things. But if they were handed to you, like your own common defense... I would imagine California would think about its defense differently than they do as part of the union. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say let's go by the issue, issue by yeah. issue. Okay, um, so defense. Let's talk about defense. California already has a separate military, can't be federalized, separate from the government. Now, here's the deal. The California National Guard is paid for by California and the federal government, but it's optional. You don't have to pay in. So if California stopped paying its annual budget for the National Guard, I think it's around $100 million or something like that, and redirected all that funding to the California State Military Reserve, 
you'd have something like the 13th largest army in the world overnight. If you add the fact that California sends, I don't know, somewhere around 70 to $100 billion in federal income tax to support the American war machine, if we were seceded and we put all that money into our own military, we're now jumping up to like the fifth largest military in the world funded overnight, um, which puts us on par with like Russia as far as military capability. We had estimated that if California was independent, it would gain about $200 billion extra dollars a year from not subsidizing other states, being able to do the trade deals that it wants, and not subsidizing the American military. You could have a military that's as well-funded as Israel or Canada or Mexico, not push over states, and still have about $70 billion left over or enough to fund uh, single-payer health care. So, Basically put, we have separate military capabilities. We could simply put the money into them, and overnight we'd have gigantically large-sized militaries. Additionally, if California secedes, a lot of people that we've talked to said, well, you have to take your portion of the debt. Have to. So you're 10% of the population. You should take 10% of the debt. To which we said, fine, but then we want 10% of the military. So if we're taking on the debt, we want 10% of all those jets, aircraft carriers, tanks, and et cetera. With just that armament, we're the fifth most armed uh, military in the world. So simply because of size, uh, redirecting funds means that we become mega powerful overnight. Obviously, it would take a year or a couple of years to build up a solid officer corps. But here's the thing. A lot of military comes from California. A lot of military bases are in California, and a lot of military people love California. If we had peaceful secession with allied stance, which is all we're talking about, we think that we could just increase pay ten dollars to $20,000 for each officer, maybe $10,000 for each enlisted man, and have a lot of people who are qualified military instantly join this new California military, get paid more, and be happier. As you're talking, I'm, I'm imagining this California. By that, I mean the nation state of California. And I'm trying to imagine what that California looks like, because there's California as it is now, and you probably would be one that would argue California as it is now is a function of its culture, but also restrained by the regressive culture of the United States is, right? And so let's say next year, secession, however it happens, it happens. And California is its own nation state. What do you think California culture is then? Because I don't imagine it stays the same. That's a good point. And I I talked to someone else about this recently. So there was a country called Israel, and it never really existed before, except in people's minds. And then in 1952 to maybe 1958, there's a term for it in in Hebrew, but basically means like the epiphany or the grand awakening. What happened was you had a lot of Jewish people who said, we'd like a homeland. And they had this idea of how great it would be. And then they moved to Israel. And they immediately had to fight a war. And right after they fought that war and they survived, a lot of them go, you know, we got to grow up. Um, It was great to have a daydream for a century about being free Jews, but now we have to make this country an actual country. Like it's not a, it's, it's basically like when the teenager moves out of their house and they get their own apartment and they go, Oh my God, I have to pay all my own bills. So the fantasy of, I can party late at night and play my music loud. Well, yeah, you can do that. 
But then when you get your first apartment, there's an awareness of, I got to do all these things to run this. And quickly you become very mature, usually. The Israeli phenomenon had the same thing and it took about 10 years. And basically what they did was they, they got hard-nosed and realized they had to start making a bunch of decisions to survive as a nation and act like a nation. <clears throat> One of them was that they were going to institute in international Hebrew uh, across all groups because they have different languages. There's no way that California becomes independent and doesn't go through an epiphany. The shock of being independent will cause people to have to think about, oh my God, we're on our own. We've got to do it. So of course, there's going to be something. I don't think a lot of California culture is going to change for this, for this example. We love climate change. We love immigrants. We love LGBTQ. We're not very big on guns. I don't see us suddenly changing opinions because we're a separate nation. I do see people recognizing that because right now, whenever there's a problem, Sacramento politicians get together and they go, well, we have a solution, but we have to get permission from the feds or they cut our money or we don't know if we can get federal permission for this or there's a federal law saying that we can't do that. That's all wiped out. And so I said there's going to be much greater accountability in government and much higher performance of government with secession. What do you think the likelihood of this happening in the near future is? Like in, in just, you know, all clarity. 1861. Members of Congress talking about secession. States talking about secession legally. Conferences among states. 2020 to 2022. Uh, Ted Cruz, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, New Hampshire, Texas, California, and conferences between New Hampshire, Texas, California. So elected officials, Senate and Congress talking about secession, multiple states legally pursuing secession, conference among states on secession. Those separate three items haven't been seen in about 140 years. Ron Perlman's a famous person, and he talked about maybe we should secede, and he's on the left. Sarah Silverman's also on the left and said maybe we should secede. For the last two years before them, only conservatives were talking about secession. Now you have mainstream lefties saying it. Another point of trajectory. When we look at Cal Exit, when I wrote the book in 2011 and 2012, and we had the, the article in 2013, we were the only people talking about California's like a nation. And we were laughed at, and that was so silly and how stupid. Then Governor Brown kept saying, well, we're like a nation. And then he told the Chinese government, we're basically like a nation compared to America. Then he went to Ireland and he said, well, if we had Ireland's tax benefits, we could be like a nation. So he made this joke about we're being a nation five times as governor after our movement started. Then Governor da uh, Newsom comes on and he says California is a nation state. So in five years, we've gone from you're laughed at saying a nation state to everybody says nation state and our governor say it all the time. And in three years, we've gone from there was no members of Congress talking about secession. There were not multiple states pursuing secession legally. There were not conferences of states pursuing secession to all three of those things. happening. If you look at that trajectory, the left coming in, the right building a case, people pursuing this through the legal system, uh, that looks like it's only heating up. It's not slowing down. Also, people said that when Joe Biden became president, there was going to be a calming in America. Never happened. They said America's going to come back together. People who volunteered for Trump are going to realize they were wrong. Everybody's going to come under Biden. We're all going to be Americans again. Never happened. 
we're the most divided we've been since 1861. A lot of polls show that. Biden was supposed to fix that. Never happened. So things were divided under Obama. They got really bad under Trump, and they've never been fixed under Biden. So that's about 10 years of super partisan division. And Biden couldn't fix it, and they said he would. The Trump supporters still believe in Trump, and they're still talking about secession. And Biden's approval ratings are now close to Donald Trump's. So that was the big Humpty Dumpty was going to get put back together again, and it never happened. So when we look at that, we go, well, Calaxa keeps growing in popularity. There's more talk about secession. There's more people pursuing that idea. It, the conversation is becoming normalized. And the people who said you don't need to do that because America is not broken and can be fixed have all been proven to be liars. Spectacularly. Yeah, that all together. That's why I think it's going to happen. Donald Trump's probably going to become president again. Republicans are probably going to win the midterms. And when that happens, California is going to freak out and probably pursue full-blown independence. So you really believe California would formally pursue secession? When Donald Trump was elected, Californians wrote it off as the Russian government put him in there. Now we know that Russia did not flip any votes. So maybe they influenced the election, but Donald Trump was legally elected. No votes were, were flipped. The FBI never said that. The NSA, CIA, House Intelligence Committee, Senate Select Intelligence Committee, Robert Mueller report, no one said votes were flipped. So people voted for Trump. And as we pointed out in 2016, Hillary only won the popular vote by California's margin, which means outside of California, a majority of Americans voted for Trump. In 2016, outside of California, a majority of Americans voted for Trump. If Trump wins again, this comfort blanket that Californians used of, oh, it's a fluke, he doesn't represent the USA because he said he doesn't represent America for years, is all gone. The stark naked reality of a majority of Americans outside of California like Trump and like what he stands for is going to have to be accepted. In 2016, Californians didn't do that. They pursued CalExit, but they also pursued the resist movement, which said, just get Trump out, America's fine, and everything will pop back into place. Well, America did not pop back into place. And if Trump gets elected, those comfort blankets that Californians used to suppress the support for CalExit will be gone. They won't be there. There's not going to be a foreign country rigged the election again. You know, this is a fluke again. People didn't know who they were voting for again. It's just going to be, wow. God damn, I guess America is racist. And when that happens, that epiphany, there's no coming back from that. Mark's response here that if Trump or maybe any politician in Trump's image was to be elected in 2024, that there would be a serious and formal secession movement amongst not just elites and politicians in California, but the general public, the citizenry of California, made me wonder what that might look like. So I asked Dr. Waters about this. What's the likelihood of any successful secession movements in the United States in the near future? I think extremely low. Uh, again, these groups are marginal for a reason. It's not just because we fought a civil war over it, though that's certainly in the background. The fact of you know a violent and successful suppression of secession. But as I said, you know this in the 150, however many years since. We have quite successfully created an integrated political identity for all of our polarization. Most people on both sides of our great political divide perceive themselves to be 
patriotic Americans. The, the, the risk more is that they're afraid the other side isn't. Mm-hmm. But it's not that either side itself wishes to defect from the idea of America. And, and that's significant because it means that there's the, the support for these exit groups is, is going to be marginal and small. And that's just not true in every country in the world. There are places where almost everyone would say, I have no interest in breaking up this state. And other countries where large parts of the population would say, I'd be happy to divide it tomorrow. We're in the former category for all our polarization, I believe. So I think there's very little prospect of a serious movement, uh, quite apart from the legal and constitutional obstacles. Okay, so there it is, secession. Let's recap. We are living through highly partisan, highly polarized, and especially divisive times. But it's not new or unique. As Dr. Shulton reminded me last week, elected officials were literally beating each other in the congressional chambers in the 1800s. And we did experience a civil war, for God's sake. But still, as Marcus Ruiz Evans explained, Something is going on, and it's not just grievances related to a president or a party we don't like. There are serious cultural differences between some of us that seem more and more irreconcilable. And so secession, while it can act as a release valve, a way to bring the temperature down, as Dr. Waters explained, the likelihood of that happening is, well, almost non-existent. So if the idea of secession in the United States in the near future makes you anxious, you can take a breath. For the rest of you, though, if secession seems like it might be a decent option to avoid conflict, to fully realize self-determination and how we are governed, well, maybe you can't relax. But it might be worth questioning what it means to be American and doesn't mean anything to you anymore. If it doesn't, then Marcus has a petition for you to sign in California. But if it does, then let's start thinking about ways to, you know, put some skin in the game challenge ourselves to think creatively about how to confront some of these issues, these conflicts, and contribute at least as much as we commiserate. All right, next week I'm starting another two-parter, doing a deep dive into the rise of political violence and extremism in the United States, with Dr. James Hodden, Director of the Center for Peace Studies and Violence Prevention, as well as Professor at Virginia Tech. And the following week, I'm talking to Jason Van Tatenhove, a former employee of the Oath Keepers and founder of and writer at the Colorado Switchblade. Chat soon, folks. 